Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin, from EPAM Continuum. So, I was a clumsy kid. I mean, I'm a clumsy adult, too, but as a kid, I was always getting hurt, and I broke numerous bones. At one point in first grade, I had a cast on each arm from separate accidents a few weeks apart. Years later, my mom told me there were whispers on the playground at the time about whether my double casts indicated an unsafe home situation, and how she screamed at another parent once, It happened at school! That has become a fun bit of family lore, of course, but it's also indicative of a tricky challenge when you think about kids and medicine. Pediatricians are primarily taking care of a child's medical needs, but they also have to think about what the parents are going through. And when it's something scarier than a broken arm, the emotional component, anxieties, and second-guessing can have a big impact on the patient experience. Given that Medicare reimbursement is linked to patient satisfaction scores, pediatricians can feel like they have an enormous number of people to care for. Well, good thing today's guest has spent a lot of time thinking about the patient experience, especially when it comes to pediatrics. Dr. Brian Vardabedian is a physician and writer whose work covers the intersection of medicine, technology, and culture. He's currently the Director of Community Medicine for the Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition for Texas Children's Hospital, America's largest children's hospital. His website, 33 Charts, is a sandbox of thinking around physicians and their transition to a new digital world. And on Twitter, he's at Dr. Underscore V. Dr. V sat down with EPAM Continuum's Jonathan Swersey, Director, Innovation Consulting, and Vertical Lead Healthcare. They dug into a number of tough topics together, including the ideal role for parents to play when their child is sick, the pressure physicians face to operationalize empathy, and how the rise in personal genomics, like 23andMe, might give rise to a new type of non-physician specialist focused on data translation. Are you intrigued? Well then, let's listen now. So we're, we're doing this podcast now, and I know you recently uh, wrote a post about podcasts and about, you know, media platforms that get overhyped and oversold, right? And right. so, um, and I know you have your own, right? You so see, you have the exam room. And so I'm just curious yes. about, about how things are going for you with that podcast. Uh, things are going well, and it's been a very, very interesting journey because, as you can tell from my blog, 33 Charts, I've been running for about a decade writing uh, various podcasts, uh, various uh, posts, rather, at different uh, different intervals. I've been heavier at it than other times, but um, I have a very particular voice on my, on my blog, and uh, having the podcast has been very interesting because I've learned that I kind of enjoy having conversations with people, and it um, – it's been a new avenue for me, and it's been very interesting. So I have uh, enjoyed it. Oh, it's wonderful! And in in terms of the, just the state of medical podcasting today, um, so that you know, what, what's your take on the on the world of medical podcasting? You know, I think all these media platforms go through. If we if we consider it sort of a platform or a uh, yeah, I guess we consider a platform, they all kind of go through cycles. I think, and I remember when. Um, in the in the 2000s, when blogging was was huge, uh, we had a Blog World Expo meeting in Las Vegas, and it was all the rage. And uh, that went through its own natural cycle, where it's fallen by the wayside on some level. People still blog, but I think we're seeing the the exact same thing play itself out in the podcast sphere. And um, in terms of medical podcasting, I think it's uh, a lot of people are doing it probably not as many as I think could be doing it, but I think it's going to probably run its course where we settle back into a 
uh, away from the hype and settle back into a spot where um, we have great podcasts and people who are passionate about it will continue doing it. Uh, but I think, you know, it's funny. It's like blogging. I mean, people continue to write. We all we all want to express ourselves writing, and podcasting isn't going anywhere. It's just basically a, it's a conversations that we're recording, and so I don't think that's going to go anywhere, despite the uh, the the exuberance we have over it right now, right? Yeah, it seems that you know humans um, are innate storytellers, right? Right. And, and so, if you look at the course of human history, we've had different technologies that help us tell stories. Um, and so this is just yeah. a, a, a latest media form of that, I would guess. And uh, speaking of stories, I was in Ireland last week at a meeting called Dot MD, which is billed as a festival of medical curiosity. And I bring this up because the meeting was was studded with storytellers, and the Irish. I didn't know this, or kind of knew it, uh, are, are really obsessed with storytelling, hmm. and. Uh, it was so fascinating to be in Ireland and to uh, writers and everybody kind of is fixated on storytelling and they're quite good at storytelling. And so I had a heavy few days hearing about storytelling. So, uh, uh, yeah, you're right. Absolutely right. Podcasting is that way that we can sort of connect and have a conversation and tell stories. Yeah. And so I'm curious, you know, if you look, reflect back on .md, um, was there any one story that really resonated with you that you brought home? You know there were there were there were there were many and uh, there were there were a lot of uh, uh, pa- patients there who were popular authors uh, mm. in the uh, who become popular authors. Sinead Gleason, who just wrote a book called Constellations, uh, just a gripping speaker on her experience as a child with rheumatoid arthritis mm. and uh, with male physicians in in Ireland, I think in the eighties and nineties, and uh, so. To hear her stories about her experience with chronic illness, uh, especially for me as a pediatrician, to hear that as a male as a male figure as well, it was it was heartbreaking to hear some of her stories uh, as a child with JRA. But but there were many many of these stories were interesting. Yeah, I, I, I can only imagine um, as you think about it, and I, and I'm glad that you brought up yeah you know, this notion of patient experience. Um, when I think about healthcare. Um, one of the things I tell people that I'm most passionate about is finding ways to bring humans back into healthcare. Um, that, uh-huh. you know, that in my view, they've been absent too long. Um, and I know you've been, you're a practicing, uh, pediatrician, um, which yeah. means that you have, um, an expertise in, in GI, but GI as, as you call it for small people. Uh-huh. And I imagine the reality of practicing in a pediatric specialty is, is more complicated than that. And so could, it sure is. Yeah. Sure so is. could could you talk a little bit about just the challenges with treating pediatric populations and um, and the parents' role in that too? Yeah. And so as it relates to patient experience, that's an interesting question because we really serve two masters. We are morally and ethically obligated to that child who's under our care, while at the same time. We have an obligation to the surrogate or the parent who's bringing that child in, and so we kind of serve. We joke that we serve two masters on some level, um, and that has kind of become very interesting in the patient experience uh, with, with the with the move towards patient experience because we uh, there's a lot of pressure to keep those parents happy, and sometimes it isn't always for the right reasons when it comes to the child. So. 
uh, it does create some real challenges for us. Um, I don't think we're we're quite there yet in terms of understanding the experience that children have. I think it's a complicated area, and given the developmental spectrum and span that we cover, it's really hard to know how we've created that uh, the proper experience of, say, a toddler. Teenagers, of course, a little easier to assess. So it does create a lot of challenges, but um, um, it has been it's been very interesting to see the patient experience industry kind of explode. Yeah, I can I can imagine, and I can imagine the the complexity it's caused in your in your practice. You know, one of the things I think that's been challenging um, has been our or this this rise in trying to achieve these patient satisfaction numbers, hmm. which, as you know, are linked to, to Medicare reimbursement. Yep. Um, and so the, the, the problem with this or the challenge with this has been um, as, we, as we strive to get those numbers to, you know, to link with Medicare reimbursement, um, there's kind of this pressure to kind of operationalize human encounters, which is a little bit icky. You know what I mean? Yeah, tell me more about um, so you know, we 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 we're, we're beholden to press Ganey scores, which every system has to sort of yep. play with, and um, and so many of us kind of studied for the test, and we know what the questions are going to be asked by the email or by the telephone survey, and so um, there's there's a lot of interest in sort of training doctors to do the things that. The press gainy assessment values. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, Is it? It's almost it, like practicing to the test, right? Practicing exactly, medicine to the test, right? Exactly. And so, as a, as a funny story, I had a friend in the Midwest uh, who had uh, the hospital administrators discovered uh, some research that if somebody leans forward, uh, or if a doctor leans forward, they're perceived as more empathetic or empathic, and so. Um, there was a movement in the hospital to make all the doctors lean forward. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of this, it, it sort of illustrates how we're trying to, like I would say, operationalize empathy. We can't, you know, you can't, uh, you can't do that. And I think the connect, the most important connections that I make with people are these most natural connections that I make over things that we have in common and conversations that we start at the beginning of an encounter. And those are the things that really form a connection. And so uh, it's been hard to sort of watch some of this studying for the test happen. Yeah. And it, and it's almost like a measurement gone awry in some ways. Exactly. Right. It's exactly right. And, uh, yeah. and then the problem is, and so if you say to a, to a, to a, a healthcare executive or a leader, you say, Hey, wait a minute, this has gone awry. Then they turn it back at you and they say, hey, you don't care about patient experience, which is really not the case at all. Right. For me, it's the it's a, the how we've mechanized or we're, we're measuring this empathy and all this sort of thing. And so it's just it's a little screwed. It kind of drives me crazy. But I the, the positive side of this is that it has opened up a broader conversation about patient experience, which mm. I think is uh, very positive. You know, um one of the things that strikes me is, um, you know, I was at a conference. It was the um, AHIP conference, America's Health Insurance Plans. Okay. And there was a panel discussion about patient experience. Um, and in that panel, there was not one patient representative. Ouch. And I thought to myself, um, 
you know, we are getting too far away from what the intended consequence is, right, of, of, of actually thinking about patient experience when that's the panel that we put forth. Yeah, no, absolutely right. Um, I think a lot of our medical meetings have made great strides in pulling uh, patients into even basic science uh, meetings and things like that, but that obviously is a huge gap to have a patient experience panel without a, without a, without a patient there. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, it, it, so yeah, you're absolutely right. No, but it's interesting. So I think you know one of the reasons that um, I think Ken was so interested in us connecting um, is you know in addition to leading our healthcare practice, um, I have an eight year old daughter who has a very complicated medical profile. And so I've been on the other side of this, right? The, um, the patient, the parent in the room as, you know, the doctor's leaning forward, but you know, they're not quite comfortable and it's really distracting them and it's distracting you. Um, and so I've seen some of that firsthand. Um, and I've, I've wondered a lot about what is the role of the parent with a with a pediatric patient, um, and how do you help them and work with the medical team most effectively? To 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 do to do what, John? I mean, to, to, role of to 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 provide you know to make sure your 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 in my case, my daughter was getting the best care, so she had um, stage four rhabdomyosarcoma, um, and so we had you know, an army of doctors who were involved in her care. Yeah. You know, and so, um, you know, as a parent, we were there for every step of the way, right? But then yeah. there's this little girl at the time, it was just before she was four years old, you know, going someplace that I didn't know, that I didn't understand. Right. Right. And so, yeah. and so you're constantly um, second guessing yourself in some yeah. ways, right? The decisions yeah. that you make, right. the team that you're working with. Um, and so I'd, I'd imagine, you know, you think about that role, like, you know, we talked about your, the, 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 um, focus on the, on the pediatric patient, right? The, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, you know, maybe that sometimes the conflict between the child and the parent, I'm just wondering, right. you know, in your view, like what are the right roles for, for parents in these situations? You know, the core role, I think, Jonathan, and, and, and probably you perhaps felt this, is really to be the chief advocate for that child. Yeah. Um, and as you've learned, probably painfully at different points, um, there are situations where you really have to advocate for um, for her needs because the system is going to put its needs ahead of um Ahead of, of head of that child, uh, and so um, I think being you know being a pain at, at, at times is part of the job of the parent looking after that child. Um, you know, I think I think it's very important to to, to model for that child as well. I mean, uh, we see this a lot that parents they they bring their own anxiety to the room, which, yep. which is yep. you know leads to this transference to the child, and we see that all the time. So parents sort of getting a hold of themselves and their own emotions uh, becomes very, very important in that journey with a sick child. But it's a very complicated issue. And this is um, very, very tricky and one that I think parents of chronic children often talk about and, and discuss and support one another on. But it's, it's a tough space. 
Yeah, yeah. And and I'm also mindful of the fact that it's one of the things that I think makes pediatric specialties so challenging, right? Um, right. Is, yeah, there is no DRG code that, that includes parent time. Um, right. You know, there's no line item to, to get this through your billing system um, to get reimbursed because you had to spend an extra 10 minutes talking with a parent. Um, you know, I think that there's so much complexity around that um, with people all trying to do the best that they can. And yet it still remains a really challenging environment. So in, in your experiences with your child, Jonathan, do you, is there, are there experiences that stick out to you as being remarkably positive? If you can identify one of those, I'm just curious myself. Yeah. Remarkably positive. Um, in, in what way? Well, experiences you've had within a large children's hospital or a medium-sized children's hospital yeah. is there. Yeah, there, there is. What are, I, I mean, you I, know what I'm saying? What are the most strikingly positive things? I, I think one of the observations to me that always shocked me but still fills me with so much warmth is that these children, the very sickest of these kids, still have that need to play. Um, uh-huh. You know, at their core they want to be children, right? Right. And so those moments when you would pause and look around, you know, in the infusion clinic um, at the Jimmy Fund or at MGH, and you would see the kids coming together and the quiet understanding that they had, right? Um, Right. There was some of that. There was, um, for me, you know, one of the routines we had with Bell um, was when we were going in for chemo, we would play the chicken dance and she would dance to a chicken dance on the way into the clinic. Um, Love that. And it was something for her that I think helped her get some of the anxiety out, um, uh-huh. you know, that I think is, is there. Um, what I tell people about this experience is that um, it, it's not child abuse, right? But in totality, it is childhood abuse. And what you see in the aftermath is trying to help her connect with other peers, which is very, very hard, right? Um, And and so watching her step up to those challenges and grow and the fact that she's still here um, and and doing great is just fills me with with, with lots of of love and, and joy. You know, it's amazing when you look at adults, say, with cancer, friends and peers, or yourself who've ever struggled with chronic disease, the way we respond to chronic illness or disease is so unique and idiosyncratic for all of us. I mean, we see it all the time. Some people, they reach out for networks, some people close up. And when you consider the developmental spectrum of a child and you couple that with personality, I mean, it is to try to understand and help them navigate this journey is incredibly complex and it really requires the innate understanding of a parent who knows that child's idiosyncrasies that just like you identified with the chicken dance. Um, I mean, some of the stuff you simply can't with child life or with an orchestrated program, you just can't plan around it. You know what I'm saying? No, you can't, you can't, right? Um, it's, you just have to provide the structure and the support around it to try Mm -hmm. to, to create some kind of normalcy and something that is anything but. Exactly. Right. And so, what a what a what a story that is, uh, Jonathan. I'm, I'm I, I hope I hope uh, y- y'all are going to come out on the other end uh, 
solid with this, right? Yeah, we just had, um, thank you for asking. So again, this was, her diagnosis was in February 2015. So February 2020 is a big, big, big date for us, um, Mm -hmm. as I'm sure you would know. But, you know, as we think about the experiences that the patients have, like, you know, I get surveys all the time, right? Of course we do. But I'm wondering in your view, what are the the right ways to measure a pediatric patient experience? And, you know, I know you said it's different for a teenage population, but, you know, then maybe for younger kids, but how how do you do that? Boy, that's a, that's a tough one. And it's a tough nut to crack. And it's one that I think uh, nobody's really adequately quite covered. Like I said, given that we, we, in the pediatric age range, we cover five or six different major developmental stages. And um, so I, I don't think we're quite there yet in terms of assessing developmentally the kind of experience that children are, are, are having. Uh, so I don't, I don't have a solid answer for that, Jonathan. I wish I did. But um, um, I, I think, again, it's, very, very, it's a very, very individual thing. And um, I'm, I'm not sure how, how, how we would measure that. How cr- I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how we do that, John. That's a tricky one. Yeah, it is. I think it's a, it's a hard question. I didn't think it'd be – if the answer was so easy, I think it would be right. done, right? Um, yeah. And so maybe, there's a, maybe there's an opportunity here for us, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's something that these conversations can, can push forth a bit. Uh-huh. Um, you know, one of, the, one of your posts um, that you blogged about this idea of health docents – uh, which sort of resonated with me, right? I think it strikes me right. that one of the things that's hard with a sick child is you you have an asymmetry of experience with the team, right? It's like it's our first time, um, presumably, but the team's done this a lot, and so how do you navigate? And so I thought this this idea of health docents or maybe a growing role for it was was something that 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 just caught my eye, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so if you look at what's happening with personal genomics. I mean, it's it's sort of a good example. Um, Patients are now seeking third-party genetic assessment, and they're getting these results back uh, that show various levels of risk uh, with various markers, et cetera. And if you take your average uh, family practitioner in Manchester, New Hampshire, um, they really don't know how to help people understand these results because they really weren't ad, you know, adequately trained in both the genomics and the discussion of uh, risk and planning around these results. And so um, you know, these genetic counselors do an amazing role of helping families uh, understand what these mean. And I think going forward, um, as medicine becomes more precise and more predictive and preemptive, uh, the amount of data that's emanating from us uh, via these genomic studies or imaging or what have you is going to become greater and greater. And I think our role as uh, as physicians, for sure, is going to be to act as a mediator or a moderator of all these uh, incoming inputs. Hmm. Now, I, I think this is where as a, as a medical profession, we have to do a better job of seeing where the, seeing where the puck is going, so to speak, since you guys are from Boston. Um, (laughs) and I don't think we're doing a great job of that. And I think if the medical profession is not careful, we're going to see the rise of allied professionals who are better at helping patients, uh, navigate this information space. 
good example of that are, are advanced practitioners, nurse practitioners, who do a great job of helping us uh, as physicians, and they're part of our team, we respect them, but it's a good example of how um, we're going to see the rise of, of uh, other uh, non-physician specialties who are able to do the things that we traditionally might have associated with the physician. Is there some- There's opportunity there, too. Is there something about the practice of medicine itself that makes it hard to adopt to this new set of needs? Yeah, I mean, I think we're we are a, a profession that is uh, uh, fixated on nostalgia. Uh, we like, in the words of Marshall McLuhan, we like to drive while looking through the rearview mirror. Um, as a profession, we're really we're really backwards facing. Uh, and for, for as, a, as a profession, through most of our life cycle, you came into a job and, and what you did during the, the, the day you graduated from medical school is likely what you did on the day of your retirement. Uh, but things are changing so quickly now um, and I, we're really going to have to reconsider and have a critical conversation about the role of our profession and what we, what we do and what the patient in the future is going to need from us. Uh, so I, I'd, I'd say we're not we're not a very forward-thinking profession, and uh, that's going to work to our detriment, I think. You know, we recently had um, Eric Topol on as a guest as well, and we were talking about, you know, the role of technology and whether technology could enhance humanity in medicine or whether it was a threat mm-hmm. to humanity in medicine. And I'm curious about your perspective on that. Is technology something that's going to help, or is the culture not something that can that can adopt it in a, in a meaningful way? Well, I think um, as I as I discussed at .md during my talk, I think we're in what I like to think of as a post-human age, hmm. meaning of medicine, meaning that uh, a lot of what we used to do is now being done by machine. Um, and so we are becoming further and further removed from one another. And in the clinical realm, that means doctors and patients are being separated mm-hmm. by technology, reductionism, all kinds of other elements that are separating us. And I think what's going to happen is we're ultimately, I think, in the next generation, um, as medicine becomes more precise and more number driven and gets and, and as all these these uh, ethical and moral dilemmas start to emerge from all this predictive medicine, our relationship as doctors is going gonna, is gonna to change, and um, I think we're probably ultimately going to become closer together. Um, I think machines are ultimately, and Eric Topol probably suggested this because he alludes to it in his book, Deep Medicine, but I think machines will allow us to reconnect and allow us to do the things that only humans can do ultimately. Okay. Um, I think it's a, it's a really helpful perspective. I, I do want to be mindful of your time. Um, if we have a couple of more minutes, I would just like... Oh, sure. We got more, I, get, I get plenty of time for you guys. These are great yeah. questions. This is a lot of fun. Good. I'd, I'd like to just carry that, that technology thread you know, forward uh, one, one more notch, right? Sure. And so we live in an era, I think, now where um, besides technology to help doctors do their work... We're seeing technologies that that have a potential to to really change the course of human life, right? And that's through through gene and cell therapies. Um, you know, the case for that has to be proven out. 
but on paper, the ability to move from treating symptoms to underlying causes. And I'm wondering how you think about these kinds of new technologies and the impact that they might have on your practice of medicine. Uh, I mean, it's a, it, it's a complete shift because for most of modern civilization, medicine was a reactive field, right? Right. We would react to people once they became sick. Um, and that's defined us for hundreds of years. And this is for the first time, um, we're able to predict things before they happen and through CRISPR technology, even manipulate the genome to prevent it from ever happening or to reverse something that would seemingly, uh, seemingly have been irreversible in the past. So it completely turns what we do completely upside down because instead of reacting to things, um, as I suggested a moment ago, we'll be probably engaged in conversations that, that, that deal with these high level discussions, uh, about uh, the future based upon what we understand with gene sequences and protein markers, et cetera. Um, and so I think it's completely mind-blowing to think what it will be like 50 years from now hmm. going to visit with a doctor or being a pediatrician or seeing a newborn during their first newborn exam when we've entirely screened the genome and we know what that child's at risk for. Uh, it's empowering, while at the same time it's kind of frightening to think about how we will deal with this onslaught of information and the dilemmas that it will raise for us. Yeah, and and you know, even how you, I guess, engage with, with patients themselves. Right. right. Yeah, I think these are going to – I think this is, there are certain things that machines can do, but I think that one of the things that's going to be so critical about human-to-human – engagement going forward is going to be our capacity or my capacity as a human to contextualize all this stuff. Hmm. Uh, it's like one of those things that a machine I, I think will never be able to quite do. Um, I think that's a kind of a moving target, but, um, there, there, there are things that only we, that only we can do and, and, and dealing with some of this ambiguity and uncertainty and, the emotional response to that is going to require a face-to-face discussion or some sort of small team to help us uh, deal with all of this. Are we going to, like, are medical schools set up to deliver the kind of training that's going to be required? Is it built into the curriculum today to handle these new technologies and, the, and this new thinking yeah. about medicine being proactive? That's a great question, Jonathan, because I would venture to say no uh we are still choosing doctors based uh based on the the old paradigm um uh to bring eric topol back into this i think he suggests in deep medicine that for many years we selected for little geniuses to go to medical school but the reality is that as um artificial intelligence and machine learning starts to do the heavy lifting um, we're probably going to be left with uh, needing a physician who has a much higher level of uh, emotional intelligence than we ever previously considered. So if you look at the current system of putting doctors through uh, standardized testing and rewarding people who get these high 
grades and standardized tests, um, that may be the exact opposite direction of where we need to be headed. And, and uh, of course, this goes back to this, you know, this thing of, of pediatric patients and satisfaction. How do we measure and truly grade emotional intelligence? Um, do we need to be grooming young people from early on to be doing a job like this? And uh, so the short answer is no. We're we're training doctors for 20th century medicine, and um, I think we're going to have a real reawakening in medical education as we realize that we're not training for the future. Okay. Is there, if you had a, a magic wand and you could create a required course for physicians to take, and you could think about that as either practicing physicians that need to go back for you know postgraduate education or current medical students, what might that course be, do you think? Oh, boy. You're asking easy questions today. Uh, no, it's a, <laughs> that, that's a that's a tough that's a tough one. Um, you know, I think I, I think that when I look at physicians through their uh, lifespan, uh, and I look at the most remarkable physicians that I've had experiences with, and you know, the the, the physicians I watched at the Dana Farber Cancer Institute, where I watched my dad uh, go through cancer and ultimately pass away. I'm sorry. Uh, these, these, thank you. These, these docs that had some level of life experience were able to sort of make this connection that other people couldn't. Um, and so in some way, bottling the, bottling the, the life experience of, of a patient or of a father who's gone through a certain experience of a child with rhabdomyosarcoma, um, that I think is where the real power lies, and and I think that's why older kind of docs who are mid career who have seen their parents pass away or that sort of thing, you learn from these experiences and and that empathy that we all have I think deep seated inside of us is able to erupt and come forward. Um, so how you package that in a course or whether it takes human experience or life experience, um, I don't know, but that's probably probably my answer because that's really where the connection comes from right yeah I, th I think that that's that's true and I, I would say and just share an anecdote with you which is um, one of the doctors who was following my daughter is, is he's world-renowned and um, we had seen him a couple of years you know after treatment was done just as part of a routine follow-up and at the end of her appointment he pulled me aside and he said he said Jonathan um, I want you to know that someone in my family has been fighting cancer for the last six months, and I won't. I, and I am sorry. He said that to me, and I said, "Why are you apologizing to me?" He said, "Because for me and who I am, I can't navigate the system any better than you could, and we've made it mm. so hard for parents. And for that, I'm really sorry." And um, I thought that was a a moment that has stayed with me for a long time as I've thought about this theme of bringing people back into medicine. Yes, that's powerful. Yeah. Uh, and it sometimes takes these experiences for us to truly understand the lens through which a patient experiences the journey through a big health system or the personal journey with a particular disease. And that uh, takes real transparency and personal strength to acknowledge that and share that with you. And that's really nice. Yeah, I th it was very humbling. 
Um, I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time, for, for working around the, the difficulties in th with the weather um, out by you and rescheduling, and just very grateful to have had a, a chance to talk with you. It's very meaningful to me. Oh, no, it's been great to talk to you, too. And uh, I love the questions that you uh, have asked, and it's been a, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, I would love to come back again and explore this stuff further. We would love to have you. So that, and we'll make sure that that happens. Thank you so very much. Take care. Okay, EPAM Continuum is a global innovation design firm with studios in Boston, Milan, and Shanghai. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Thanks to Dr. Brian Vardabedian and Jonathan Swersey for their great conversation today. Cheers to Kip Palalis, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Numerous appreciations to Ken Gordon, our producer, for all of his masterminding behind the scenes. I'm your host, Pete Chapin. I'd be a terrible pediatric patient. And to our listeners, we thank you for your ears. Mm -hmm.